As president of Scott Meredith Literary Agency, Arthur Klebanoff has represented J.D. Salinger, Arthur C. Clarke, several U.S. presidents, Michael Bloomberg, Bill Bradley, and Paul Krugman, among others and has handled books with over $1 billion in sales. In 2001, Klebanoff founded Rosetta Books, an independent e-book publisher, which for 20 years disrupted the publishing business. Klebanoff has published, represented, or packaged over 75 thought leadership titles. He founded Rodan Books to publish titles by impactful leaders. Arthur Klebanoff, welcome to Business and Society and the Creative Process. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about the beginnings of your intellectual curiosity. I believe your father was born in China. You know, Harbin, China, was a city of 3 million Chinese, 300,000 Russian expats, and about 25 or 30,000 Russian Jews. So my father grew up in that Jewish community, having been born in China. His older siblings were all born in Russia. And in and my my uncle, my father's oldest brother, the family, my father, my grandfather died when my father was like five years old. My grandmother was running a boarding house for deserters in the Russian army. So they were not exactly doing well financially. And her eldest son took furs from the mountains near Harbin, mostly fox, colorful furs, and went to Shanghai, a very open city, and ended up establishing the leading farrier of Shanghai. In the beginning, his client base were prostitutes. Later on, it was the wealthy class of Shanghai, including Madame Shanghai Shack. And you can see his depiction of his shop today in the diorama of the Museum of the City of Shanghai. It's interesting how the seeds of that, we don't know why we're pulled in different directions, but you can already hear the seeds of an interest in international relations and politics and business negotiations. It's like in those elements there. You know, as someone whose literary agency, Scott Meredith, has roughly 25,000 different titles, you know, as you look back at how the publishing world has changed, and I'm wondering what your reflections are of how we create, of course, the, the writers of tomorrow, but also the readers of tomorrow, when there's so many distractions, you know, what is the importance of the book and how just it helps us be better thinkers, better citizens. Well, I started by accident in the publishing business in the early 1970s as a lawyer. And the U.S. business has gone through quite a few transformative steps, the first of which was that there were dozens of independent publishers at that time. They ultimately were all consolidated into what today is called the Big Five. If Paramount succeeds in selling Simon and Schuster, it'll may turn out to be the big four if they sell it to one of the other big four. The publishers, interestingly enough, related into largely into nine American entities. Only one of the largest publishers in the United States, Simon and Schuster, is owned by an American company, Paramount. The, the, in, in the 1970s, the mass market paperback book form exploded as an economic, as a readership and economic model. So if you, if you published a commercial novel in those years, for it's sold in hardcover, you could probably sell 10 times as many mass market. And over a period of time, the mass market publishers became the dominant economic forces in publishing, the leader of which was Bantam. And, you know, in early in our career, we set various records for auction prices and mass market records. You know, Judy Krantz's second book, Princess Daisy, was auctioned for more than $3 million, which at the time was considered really big money for the paperback rates. 
All right. But if you then look at it over the passage of time, the hardcover book, which was thought to be getting weaker and weaker as a business form, actually got stronger and stronger. So like I'm talking to you in Paris, in the France, that's your so-called trade bookstores, Solomon bookstores, the hardcover book market is nominal. It's essentially a trade paperback market. And people thought that's what would happen in the United States, but it didn't happen. And the hardcover book essentially became mass marketed, came mass marketed partly because of booksellers like Barnes and Noble and later Amazon and so-called big box stores like Price Costco, Walmart, Sam's, Target, other similar outlets. So we reached a point where the hardcover book was substantially outselling mass market book. And the mass market book has actually been flat in sales for probably 25 years. And if you're looking for a book that sells a gigantic, I mean, like 10 million, 15 million, 20 million copies, you have to look for a hardcover book, which in the 1980s would have been unsafe as a result. The highest selling books in those years were James Mitchner's books, a half million copy. Today, a half million copy book is, in a one even put you in the top 20, 25 titles of the year. I'd love to hear about the trajectory of your career because it wasn't straightforward. You studied law. There was an American studies major at Yale in the 1960s, but that was a very new area of study. And so how does someone who worked under Patrick Moynihan, how do you transition then to being a literary agent? Well, I think literary agents happen in circumstances where they meet people who choose to be authors. So my first client was Pat Moynihan, and I represented a number of his books. I had a business at law school giving political consulting advice to people. And one of my clients, Bill Bradley, became a literary client. Over the course of my career, I don't think I have ever pitched an author. In one manner or another, an author has cut a referral or they walked into my office or into my partner's office. They were a friend or a colleague. When we were together as partners, even then we referred to ourselves as a boutique. When I went off on my own and never had another agent under the roof, I've been a boutique since 1983. So I only handle projects that intrigue clients and projects that intrigue me. It's so interesting that the old Chinese saying, the fish must put its own mouth on the hook. And I think that that's a a great position to be in. And it must be said, your agency, which with its 25,000 titles, and this includes presidents, and it includes a number of e-books. So Rosetta Books uh, with all its illustrious authors from Arthur C. Clarke and and others for the Salinger Estate are different. So it's really a variety of well-respected authors at Classics. And so I'm wondering what you feel makes a book a classic, or as you think about leaders or books on leadership, which is your current phase that you've just launched, Rodan Books. When you look back at some of those memoirs, what made those books last? And others you see that, oh, that didn't date so well. So how is a book of its time? Let's start with measurement of things that last. Here actually is a book updated, I think, at least once about which captures bestseller lists from the early 1900 forward. So it's essentially a tracking device which says here are the top 15 or 20 or whatever fiction and nonfiction books of 1918, of 1922, of 1942. It just keep going. Right? What is absolutely striking about that list, there are exceptions. 
But it's absolutely striking that the best sellers of the time, almost without exception, have faded from view. They long since aren't read anymore. And, and the books of the time, which are read, were not bestsellers in their time. So if you said, are books read that were written in 1920, 1930, 1940? Absolutely. But what was their commercial response when published? Generally speaking, modest. That's interesting. So often the greats or the classics are a little bit of ahead of their time. They take time for us to understand what's revolutionary or what's innovative. So it just shows that there is the art of marketing or the art of being an agent and to bringing those to our eyes. And then the things settle and we see who resonates over time. So Arthur, one of the things that I learned by doing a dissertation for the literary historian of fame, M.H. Abrams, is he said, think of a book like a triangle. On the bottom of the triangle is the commercial measures of the book, going from A to B to D to Z. But up on the angle of the triangle is the tradition. And so... Abrams argued, and that's why Harold Bloom was his student on the anxiety of influence, that as you begin as a writer to go up that steep slope of the tradition, you realize the greats are a little always higher than you, you know, but they are what you try and aspire to. And then he said that over time, what fills in the triangle are all the many different kinds of buyers across decades that happen upon your book. Does that make sense? I mean, you've done so many things. Where it resonates, I mean, I have a personal example. Michael Corda, the editor-in-chief of Simon Schuster, is a legendary figure in the publishing business. He's also written many books, quite a few of which have been commercially successful. And so years ago, I was reading one of his books, which had a chapter about like half a dozen or eight different writers he had worked with, Ronald Reagan, Tennessee Williams, the third man, Arthur Green. So anyway, one of the accounts was how I worked for Nixon. And the Richard Nixon account was a deal where he was, Torta was the editor, Nixon was the author, and I was Nixon's agent. So I'm, reading, so I'm reading this chapter and I'm saying to myself, well, Michael Court is a lot more famous than I am. He's written, for it was at the time, eight or 10 best-selling books I've written on. But I know a lot about this particular transaction which, with Richard Nixon, which isn't in this chapter. And that inspired me to write a book, which ended up called The Agent, about my experiences in the publishing business. And I gave a chapter to different accounts, one of which was Richard Nixon, you know, one of which was trying to work on projects with the Vatican and Pope John Paul II. So Interesting. The, the opening of the book was the, the litigation fight over the backlist ownership of e-books, which came at the launch of Rosetta Books. So now that book, to give, to give a, my resonance about a book, my personal experience, is that that book has sold over the years, I mean, a handful of copies. I mean, I, I once figured out that my earnings were roughly $5. So that book became very important to me professionally because it offered the potential new clients an opportunity to learn something about what I did without me having to explain it at great length. And I'm quite confident that I landed some significant clients who never told me they looked at my book, but that the book had an impact in their thought process. Arthur, you might want to tell the story about, well, first off, it's not mentioned that you're the only literary philosopher and agent that's done more than a billion dollars worth of book deals. So you're being very modest about your own book, but could you talk about how you represent 
Easton Press is 3,000 books and how you got three U.S. presidents to contribute to signing their name to those Easton Press books. That's a very entertaining story for young people who often think about, you know, memoirs of U.S. presidents. So it was interesting. How did you do that so that you got Nixon at the very end of his career to participate with people as different as President Carter? If you would call that, it might be interesting. To sure. Well, the Eastern Press is a division of a privately held company called MBI, which is thought to stand for meaning, beauty, and importance. It's a direct response collectibles company, and meaning it doesn't sell in stores, sells only direct to the consumer. And its publishing unit, it sells only leather-bound editions. And I met them because I was licensing imagery, bird imagery, by Roger Tory Peterson, the ornithologist, author of the Peterson Field Guides, to their other division. They were selling porcelain vases with Peterson's bird images on the vases. As a result of that, at the time, Eastern Press did only public domain books. Public domain books, loosely, are books published in the United States before 1920. You don't need anybody's permission to publish them in any edition format you want or to carve them up into something longer, shorter, whatever. That's what being in the public domain means. And if you say Moby Dick, well, you don't need anybody's permission to work with Moby Dick. I argued to Easton Press, who had a significant business in the public domain, of which the main product was called The 100 Greatest Books. You signed up and you got a book a month for a very, very long time. I said that they were in a position to establish a nonfiction business copyright protected, with very prominent titles, because their competitor, Franklin Library, was totally focused on fiction. And the owner of the company, who's a genius, became a billionaire, once back at the company, said, okay, we have sold many different products about the presidency. So we have hundreds of thousands of names of buyers interested in the presidency. So we'd like to do a set and presidential biographies of every president. But to make it work, we need the signed memoirs of Nixon Ford Park. So we'll give you, me, the assignment of clearing the rights. If you clear the rights and we actually sell a lot of books, you'll make a lot of money. If you don't clear the rights, you will make so fine. And what I first decided to do was approach through their publishers, all three presidents with a so-called most favored nations deal. In other words, all were told that each president is being asked to do the same thing. By taking that position, nobody negotiated with me. So that was the first decision. The Actually, Nixon was the first president to agree to do it, for whatever his reasons. Ford agreed, Carter agreed, and then Nixon withdrew, which was from my point of view a calamity. I mean, I had the deal done. Now Nixon said to help me out. So I had a friend because I had worked for Pat Moynihan in the Nixon White House. I knew a guy who knew Nixon very well. And I said, help me understand this. And what can I do about it? And his comment was, well, you're in deep trouble. Just the reason Nixon agreed to do this was he was pretty sure the other two guys wouldn't do it. And he hates the other two guys. So now you got the other two guys to do it. So obviously, Nixon doesn't want to do it. We then got incredibly lucky. The sister company of the Eastern Press, the Danbury Mint, sold collector dolls for like $200 each. And they handled all their own fulfillment, Tintar. And one morning while all this is going on, Richard Nixon orders dolls from the Danbury Mint for his granddaughters. And somebody at the company was intelligent enough to see 
they got an order from Richard Nixon. Maybe they should tell somebody internally. So this made its way to the owner's desk and therefore to my desk. And I said, okay, so now what we're going to do is the owner is going to write Richard Nixon with a special display of advertising saying, I'm writing you as one president to another. And this offer is simply incomplete. It can't possibly be complete without your book right here with your picture and the picture of your jacket. And Nixon asked, would they agree to autograph as many books as were needed? And the number needed was unknown because we hadn't marketed it. So Nixon responds and says, okay, change my mind. I will participate on one condition. I want my book to be used last in the collection, which he knew would require the minimum number of signatures. Carter, who kind of made a living from publishing, thought it over and said, well, I have one condition. I want my book to be used first. So I have the maximum number of signatures, make the maximum amount of money. Ford, who wasn't too clever, never said anything. And that's the long version of how that program, which ultimately had, I think, 15 or 20,000 subscribers in a $40, 40-volume program, came about and put Easton Press into the nonfiction leather-bound publishing pixels for, the, for decades. And I ended up with my colleague with the assignment to clear rights to over 3,000 fights. And just to think the way that politics or even this era of there being statesmen, I mean, sometimes people are even looking back sentimentally at Nixon with all of the issues as being more statesmanlike than what we've seen in recent times. And for that to happen, I feel something is wrong. But so I was wondering, as you look at the evolution in politics and where we're going with the attention economy and many young people growing up have just understood political climate that is based on clicks and tweets and this idea of reading long form, even long form journalism, but definitely books and, and international relations and all these things are very nuanced and complex and can't be tweeted. So how do we reintroduce, and I, I imagine this is one of the missions of Rodan Books, how do we reintroduce this nuanced thinking, which is so important for conflict resolution and, and proper leadership? Well, my world is a very small part of a big world. So I'm trying to encourage, well, it takes several different parts. First, you need to have a highly qualified writer. Okay, you asked earlier what is going to be like the future of publishing. The future of publishing at one level is the same as the present, is the same as the past. It starts and ends with the author. The author will never be replaced, not by technology, not by anything else. So first, you need a highly qualified author. We're living in a world where and social media is part of it. We're living in a world where getting people's attention or what you've written is not easy. So when you're dealing with a traditional publisher, they say, we want to evaluate the author. Do they get on television? Do they go out and give a lot of speeches? Like, do they go on the radio? What do they do? They have podcasts, right? They reach a lot of people. Like, what does this author do that will create interest in an audience for what they write? I think that authors who are about it, who are willing to spend some money, and to have teams around them who know something about this, can be highly effective in a scattered media world, get their work in front of a lot of people. 
And so if you say, what am I doing? Well, I'm looking for highly qualified authors who understand they have to back their book in one fashion or another to make people know that. And the people who are in public life who have valuable books will in all likelihood take those books to one of the large publishers and get it high advanced. You know, so you're you're the Obamas and you offer your pair of books and you get a check for $70 million. You're Prince Harry, you get a check for I'm not sure what. So there are big publishers will finance what they consider to be automatic interest books. And I also think the odds are very high going back to the idea of bestsellers over time and impact. The, the, if you were to check today, what presidential memoirs are still read? Basically, it's Ulysses Grant, who wrote like a really good book, and the rest of them you can forget about, really speaking. So if I were betting, you're not going to have to go very many years before nobody reads Obama's memoir. It's interesting. You're mentioning a lot of books that then would have the potential for tie-ins, and I see that you represented The Queen's Gambit, which was then produced as a series on Netflix. So they're buying not just the author for the book rights, but they're buying rights generally and the potentials for that. Right, right. A very long time ago, I concluded that we would have a full digital revolution. And what today we call ebooks would be a robust international business. Now, I was right at one level, but in the world of business, timing is very important. So my timing actually was terrible. I mean, I was probably 20 years off, give or take, which is a long time to be off. And the company I formed, Rosetta Books, I used to refer to informally as the world oldest startup. I mean, it was ultimately sold not that long ago for a similar amount of money to what was invested in it, but its opportunity to become a valuable vehicle. Th things might have happened that might have been better, but they didn't happen for a lot of reasons. But for example, one of my views through ebooks was the tie-ins become very, very valuable. So, for example, the author of The Queen's Gambit is a guy named Walter Tavis, who's been dead for a very, very long time. But his books include uh, The Color of Money, The Man Who Fell to Merge. The Queen's Gambit was the only important book he wrote that 20 years after his death hadn't been turned into a media use. Why? Actually, his estate had been paid a quarter of a million dollars for the rights a long, long time ago. People ran around with this thing for a long time, and they got thrown out of every office in Hollywood saying that who's going to be interested in a girl chess player? We don't think they're interested in any chess player. It's certainly not going to be interested in a female chess player. So, of course, once it was finally made, it was a mass international hit. The massive international hit drove that ebook and its print version that drove that ebook to the top of our catalog and to the top of all of our partners catalogs for many 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 months if you think about books and how the library of your soul has its signposts its blinking lights and its warnings and its proceed green lights in it. There is no greater book contributor in the last 50 years than the super agent author Lebanoff. In the interview, you see a humble man who is expert at finding exceptional talent. People who have converted their word bodies into global impact. 
They've converted their physical body into a corpus that matters to society and to business and to their friends. In the following half of the interview, you will hear Arthur expand on how his early work in political consulting for people like Michael Bloomberg, Bill Bradley, the mayor of New York, Lindsay, mushroomed into experiences where he worked with great writers like J.D. Salinger, the Great Books Foundation, and even in the 3,000 books of Eaton Press. So listen for what this man wants to say to you about the power of books. We're talking about tie-in, and I think you've established that the author is primary, but they need a team of people who make the book after the author makes the book. And now you're exploring how the additional high-octane fuel is tie-in. Can you explain how you make people who have a platform understand that they have a book in them as well. Michael Bloomberg and Senator Bill Bradley. Well, I met Mike Bloomberg probably over 20 years ago. I met him through a dear friend who was his senior writer for media. And he at the time was thinking about, he had been approached by Wiley, a big business publisher, to do a book. He was intrigued, didn't know anything about publishing. And my friend said, well, you order me my friend, figure it out. Okay. Now, if that's to give you an idea of how companies change, prosper, and pay. At that time, I think internationally, Bloomberg has, give or take, 1,500 employees. He still had an annual summer party in his estate in Westchester, where he invited everybody. And in his office, he purposely didn't have a conference room. When he wanted a private conference, he went to a delicatessen he could see from his window. He said, meet me at this delicatessen at a certain time. He would go there after he saw he, you know, his meeting show up, so he never wasted any time. Fine. So we have our meeting. And that meeting, which was one of the most amazing meetings I ever had in my life, he said, is a version of, look, you know, I'm not doing this to make money, because I'm going to give the money away. He says, but I may not decide to, when the book is done, publishing the book, for a lot of reasons I don't even know about now. He said, so I'm only interested in one provision with the publisher, which is that I can cancel the book total last name. This is a request. I said, okay. Then at some point he turns to me and he says, so and how do you get paid? I said, well, literary agents traditionally get a commission. He said, well, I don't like to pay commission. He says, then you're going to have a stake in the project and you're going to lobby me to go forward with the project when maybe I don't want to go forward. So I said, well, I have a rule against arguable with billionaires. So one, I said, if you told me, I can tell everybody we're working together. He said, I'll consider doing this project for free. He said, do you want me to do it for free? So he starts laughing and he says, no, I don't want you to do it for free. So I said, okay, here's what I suggest. Talk to your lawyers, have them present a retainer agreement to me, which is cancelable at will. And you plug in the whatever dollar amount you think is appropriate. And whatever the agreement says, I'm sorry. Can I be more flexible than that? So he laughs some more. He says, well, I don't think so. So I get a 20-page agreement, which includes if I get invited to his house, I can't tell anybody what he has on the walls. I can't tell anybody what he serves for dinner. None of that was a problem because I never got invited to his house. But I did end up as his agent for more than 10 years. It's I was essentially at a month-to-month agreement, which was never canceled until he became mayor and couldn't have a literary agent anymore. And now, all these years later, with the Rodan books, the Rodan books will be publishing the history of Bloomberg News. 
which could only happen out of the experience I had back in those days with his first book. That's sort of loosely the story. He's also very funny. I was lobbying him after he did the first book, which worked out very well for him. And the, the photograph of Bloomberg on the jacket of the first book took one day for the photo shoot. And Bloomberg's position after the day was finished was I've just sat for my last photograph. That's a total waste of my time. So that photograph is the sole campaign photograph for mayor. That's loosely, you know, the Bloomberg story. I think it would be important for listeners to know that you were trained first in American studies at Yale, and then you worked for Mayor Lindsay of New York City at the lived experience, and then you went back to Harvard Law School. Do you want to talk a little bit about the power of learning before you become a professional? Absolutely. Look, the, the meeting that changed my life was opening day at Yale in, I guess it would have been in 1965, right? The practice at that time was everybody was assigned to an advisor. And the, principal purpose of the discussion was to view the courses you had signed up for. So I had signed up for five lecture classes, which was pretty typical. I go to see my advisor, who later becomes a very close friend and mentor. He says to me, why would you ever take lecture classes? He says, if you're interested in lecture classes, I'll give you a set of my lectures. Why don't you read them? He says, what you should do is be part of an intensive research seminar. And luckily for you, a close friend of mine in the American History Department has got one of these things starting tomorrow. Hold them up and get you in. So my whole Yale experience ultimately was deeply involved in research experiences. I'm not saying that's for everybody, but I think that's one kind of an issue. Another kind of an issue is I had opportunities over the years as a result of what I was doing to meet extraordinary people. And one of my, this is still a philosophy, one of my, how I'm 75 years old, one of my philosophies when I was in my early 20s was if you see somebody who's interesting and they're doing something interesting, see if you can arrange to carry their briefcase and just run around with them for a while. The only things that can happen are good things. And one of the other things that I argue when I have a chance, sometimes it gives some advice. I think a lot of people feel that having a life plan is important. Because if you talk to them, they'll say, well, in five years, I'm going to be doing this. And in 10 years, I'm going to be doing that. 15 years, I'm going to be doing this. And I am absolutely not a believer in that. I'm a believer in diving in, learning, meeting people, and going with the flow. Now, I have a younger sister who knew when she was 15 years old, she wanted to be a doctor. She's a wonderful doctor. She's been committed to being a doctor for the last like 50 years. I think that's great. But if you don't have a target that is laser-like, what you really want to do is meet people who are incredibly talented and see if you can make yourself useful to them and learn from them. Bill Bradley became a simple story that got complicated. Bill was a very successful basketball player. I met him through a friend while he was toward the end of his professional career. And he was thinking about what am I going to do next? And he was thinking about getting into electoral politics. And he had grown up in Crystal City, Missouri. So the first thing he thought about was, well, maybe I'll run for Secretary of State in the state of Missouri. And I got hired to do a so-called voter study for him on the state of Missouri. When he thought it over, his reaction was, well, I don't think I really want to be Secretary of State in Missouri. So he didn't do it. Then he thought about running for Congress 
on Long Island in New York, went through the same process and said, yeah, but I don't want to be in Congress. Then there was an opening, potential, to run for Senate in New Jersey. And the probability of getting elected wasn't high. It was risky. But his position became, well, if I could become a senator, that's something I'd love to do. So he ran for Senate. In 1978, and I was part of a small team that helped him, and the and he won. So now, in terms of Bill Bradley as a client, for a period of time that went on for years, I would speak to him annually, and I'd say, "Well, how are you doing? Thinking about a book?" And he would say, "I really." don't have any time to write. And I would say, well, I figure that. I said, how about if I introduce you to a writer? He says, no, no, I don't want to work with a writer. I write, I'm going to write myself. I said, well, that's the same as telling me you're not going to do a book. So well, I don't know. So we would have this conversation every year. It could well have been for 10 years. So at some point, he calls me up and he says, well, actually, I wrote a book. This was while he was in the Senate. He says, the manuscript's up in my attic in Washington. Nobody's read it. And at the time, I was considered to be a too young a person to be hired to be an agent by somebody like Bill Bradley. He had an older guy who had very serious tickets. Anyway, the question was, what was he going to do? I said, let me come to Washington. I'll read what you have. Let's talk about it. He already knew he was going to run for president. And at that time, Newt Gingrich had been paid over $3 million at HarperCollins, which was owned by Rupert Murdoch, to write a book. And to all intents and purposes, it looked like a bribe. It was kind of a problem. So Bradley, who was a super honest person, felt in the circumstances. He couldn't take a dollar advance from a publisher. It would look bad, even if it wouldn't have been $3 million, it would have been half a million dollars, but it would have looked lousy. At the same time, he wanted to know that the publisher was going to make an appropriate effort. So I said, well, the publisher hasn't read the book, right? He says, right. I said, and if they ask you to change it, are you going to change it? He said, no. I said, okay. So here's what we do. He said, we have to let your publisher, which was cut off. We have to let your publisher read the book. We have to tell them that this is it. They don't like it. Don't take it. We're not even interested in the comment on one cent. And we cannot take a dollar advance. But, and this is still true all these years later, said we want a commitment from which whose parent was around the pencil. We want a commitment that this book will be treated as a so-called lead title. And when you treat something as a lead title, they're publishing you know, hundreds of titles a month. There are only one or two leads, which means they get substantial marketing investments and other things. And the fact is, a lead title commitment is just as good as an advance, but it doesn't say anything about it. So that's what we did. I was supposed to split the commission with the agent in place. I think it's a fair way to say it. I was stiff. Yeah. His agent refused to pay. And, and so Bradley put right there on the jacket of the book. Bradley said, I want to thank my two agents. Oh, he names the other guy. He says, I want to thank him for securing a very attractive advance. And I want to thank Toth for convincing me that I couldn't take it. So I had hanging out there in public from Bill Bradley that I was the agent who didn't secure advances, which was, you know, which was a little bit odd. Okay. And meanwhile, because the other agent behaved badly, he got fired. And for the next 20 years or whatever it is, I, you know, whatever Bill Bradley does as a project, he comes to me.
The wonderful story. So you've spoken about your time at Harvard and research projects and a kind of spirit of autodidacticism and flexibility. And so many of our authors have shared with us the importance to libraries are where they can explore, they can discover, and they can follow their own interests. So what are your thoughts about the importance of libraries? And I call them the invisible arts, all these people that help nourish our young people. Well, in my Yale days, the seminar I was taking was specifically dedicated to the run-up to the Civil War. They were in this intensive project, and we're only covering like six months of American history. And I chose a topic to research that, that required reading the newspapers of the day. Now, this is 1966. You actually needed the physical newspapers, which meant you had to go to the Library of Congress and find the newspapers, which was quite a wonderful project. So that was in one context. In another context, at the end of my Yale days, I worked on a project that led to, well, to the basis of a voter study. So at the time, it's still largely true. Data which was collected, census tract data, voting data, demographic data, and everything was collected on different boundaries. So the only way you could get any compatibility was actually to sit on the floor of the municipal building in City Hall and try to create an approximation of a global map that would pour all these things together like a jigsaw bus. So I did that for months. And after it was done, we had, at the time, the only way you could really do we would consider now data calculation doing your phone was to do data on a mainframe computer. So I hired two terrific women who loved John Lindsay, and we cranked all this stuff out on a mainframe computer. And we came up with, with what was really an early form, a data map. And I used the data mapping with Lindsay's campaign manager to make a very simple point, which was, hey, there was tremendous splits in the electorate conservative liberals in between, whatever. So I showed them what amounted to Lindsay's friends on a map. And I said, there's only one problem starting out. They're not enough of them to get Lindsay elected. <laughs> Let's count them. We're short. Okay. So then I showed them Lindsay's enemies, of whom there were a lot. And I said, if you question my analysis that these are enemies, why don't you take Lindsay out on any of the street corners, which I had marked on the map? I said, but if you want to bring him back alive, you better bring police. I said, because that, that's how much the people who live in these places hate him. So that leaves everybody else who actually doesn't like him, but doesn't hate him. So this whole race is about, can you persuade any of those people or enough of those people to vote for him? So that was a different kind of a research project. So when I went off to law school, I started doing these political studies, both for people like Bill Bradley and others. And I spent as little time at law school as I could. <laughs> Fair summary. And so you identify what the many of the technology companies have also identified through their research and their neuroscientists working for them is that hatred is a strong motivator as well, you know, as being that strong emotion. 
And what I imagine with Rodin books is that maybe you're trying to kind of restore a sense of analytical thinking and thought leadership that maybe removes some of those kind of knee-jerk reactions we see right now in the political arena. So how do we, you know, make civics and civil discourse do that for people who've just grown up? I think it's very, very difficult. If you look at it from the perspective of the commercial aspect of the trade, publishing business. If you publish a book from the left, whether it's accurate or not, you know, which absolutely assumes the right or the, for that matter, the center, that book, if it's been well put together, will sell a lot of copies. If you publish a book from the right, which does the same thing, that book is a whole lot of copies. If you sell a book from the middle, you won't sell any books anyway. So I would argue there is today, and it's a societal problem in the United States, as to policy books and even history books, point of view books, there is no center. Yeah, that's this fractured trust, fractured political atmospheres. I hope that we'll get back to, you know. Theoretically, but let me put it this way. My view is that publishing doesn't make society. Publishing reflects society. So what we have going on now is is something very much slip and extremely noisy. So until and unless there's a change in that, we're not going to see a significant, it might be we're not going to see a significant view in publishing. Publishing is a follower. Publishing is a lot of reading. But yeah, we're reading in different ways as well. And that's a whole nother subject, reading for information for data as opposed to this nuanced complexity. But I do think it's so, so important. And I want to thank you for sharing your insights into that, you know, just helping us see our thoughts and hold them in our hands and just say, is this a good idea? Is this, how did this, how is this made? How's this put together? What can I add to this? You know, just finally, as you think about the future and education and the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation. Well, I think that publishing can be a much stronger force for good than it is today. One of the things that enables that is power of self-publishing whether it's through Amazon, Anger, or whatever source, has never been more powerful. And with the passage of time, it will become more powerful still. So the individual author doesn't need the conduit of a publisher in order to reach a lot of people and potentially make a lot of noise and in the process of a lot of impact. So I think a whole lot of people who write, write for money. And they're trying to make a living. I think to the extent you try to write to make a living. First of all, it's a very tough business to make a living in. I'm a member of the Authors Guild because I have one published book. You can only get in if you have a published book. It has roughly 9,000 members. And a while ago, they surveyed the membership and determined that the median income of a professionally published author was under $7,000 a year. So if you're writing for money, you're a whole lot of better things to do with your life than trying to write great books. I think if you write for purpose and impact, very interesting things can happen, both through traditional publishers and in, in through self-efforts. Indeed. And it's never, it's a slow game. It's never, as you say, immediate, but that impact and that ripple does pass on through the generations. So if you have a book and you say what you need to say, it needs to come out. And so we're so grateful for what you do to advocate 
for authors and help them find their voice and realize their story through its complexity. So thank you, Arthur Kabinoff, for sharing your insights into publishing and all your work advocating for authors, books, thought leadership, the breadth of your curiosity and intellectual humility. Thank you for adding your voice to business and society and the creative process. Thank you. Thank you, Arthur. Thank you. Bruce, thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks, man. Bye. This interview was conducted by Bruce Piasecki and Mia Funk. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Andrew Green. Digital Media Coordinator was Julia Rhodes. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening.